Hi, everyone. It is so good to be with you all. I'm honored to be with everyone in this room at all of our campuses and online. And I'm especially honored to be speaking in this series in which we're discussing the need to grow up with our faith or else we're in danger of growing out of it. Discussing the idea of going beyond a flannel graph faith. This looks so good, doesn't it, though? Uh, If you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you to watch it. Phil did an amazing job setting up this series, and I'm not just saying that because he's my boss. (laughs) Uh, I love the title of this series because I've always loved stories, and today's story is one of my favorites. I still remember sitting in Sunday school and we would sing a song like Father Abraham, which if you aren't a Christian, you didn't grow up in church, it sort of goes like this. Feel free to sing it if you know it. Father Abraham, how many sons, how many sons have Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise. And then we'd like spastically move all of our appendages, right arm, left arm, left foot, right foot, and we'd spin around. And I didn't even really get the song because my dad's name was not, in fact, Abraham. It was so confusing to me. And some of you are thinking right now, man, you Christians are really weird. You don't know the half of it. (laughs) Uh, But then my teacher would sit down and bring out the flannel graph, detailing this fun and lively story about a boat and animals and a rainbow. And she would read from Genesis, and it would say, every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark and keep them alive with you. And I thought to myself, how fun, a traveling zoo cruise, (laughs) all of my favorite animals in one place, and also cats. (laughs) Most kids, most kids are enchanted with this story, and of course, though, That's not all there is. Years later, I started reading the Bible more seriously, and I saw a different story. I read this. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air, they were blotted out from earth. Blot out. To be clear, being blot out is not good. (laughs) Uh, Blot out is what I want to do my kids when we're on a road trip, and they keep asking, are we there yet? I'm going to pull this car over and blot you out. (laughs) See, this part of the story was not on our flannel graphs. Where were those flannel graphs? So today we want to return to the story and see the deeper meaning behind it, because that's the thing with stories, right? Stories point to something deeper. Stories are how we make sense of life. Our entire worldview and memories are created out of stories. Robert McKee, he's a script writing legend, says stories are the creative conversion of life itself into a more powerful, clearer, more meaningful experience. So today, we want to talk about how we interpret stories. Because two people can witness the same event and interpret it differently. Uh, Stephen Covey, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, tells a story about being on a subway. And when a father and his children uh, enter, and the children are rambunctious, they're annoying everybody, 
And uh, as they yell and jump around, causing a scene, the father just sits there doing nothing. And Covey gets irritated with the father's lack of engagement, so he reaches over to let him know how disturbing the kids are and if he would control them. And the man looks up in a daze and he says, I guess you're right, Uh, we just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. And I don't know what to think. I guess I don't know how to handle it either. Can you imagine the shift in perspective in that moment? See, one story pointed to an annoying circumstance with the irresponsible dad. The other story points to a tragic, impossible situation for any parents to handle. Each story pointed to something. Each one had a different meaning. And Covey writes about how he could have handled this situation differently. He talks about the need to have asked more questions instead of assuming. And this is how we interpret stories, right? We ask questions. So today we're going to look at one of the most ancient stories we have, asking questions about meaning. What is the point of this story. See, there's one way to interpret this story that focuses on the violence and anger of God, and there's another way that sees hope and restoration. And here's the deal. These two stories are still happening today. A story of a world that is hopeless and a story of redemption, depending on how you interpret it. So I'm going to read some of the Noah story, and then we're going to ask some questions to help us find the meaning underneath. I can't read the whole thing, but I'm going to read a summary. And as I do, I want you to pay attention to some questions that you may have. So here we go in Genesis. Uh, The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. And God said, make yourself an ark of cypress wood. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all human beings. But then, many days later, Noah and his family are saved. And God says this, I have set my bow in the clouds. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. So, what questions do you have? Uh, The first one I have is this. Is it true? Is it true? That's the immediate first question, right? Uh, For some of you, this question might make you uncomfortable. For others, you're wondering if that's even a question we are allowed to ask. See, my love for stories continued uh, into the junior high years. 
And uh, I, I started reading in sixth grade Michael Crichton novels. <laughs> I, I was a little bit of a nerd, I know. Uh, while reading the book Jurassic Park, yes, the book Jurassic Park was way better than the movie, I had a moment of existential dread. For whatever reason, I'd never thought of this dilemma before, but as I read the book, it hit me. What about the dinosaurs in the Bible? They're never mentioned. What about the dinosaurs in the ark? Dinosaurs love to eat goats, and I assume cats. How is this possible? I wondered for the first time, is this story true? But I ignored the question. I shoved it down because it scared me. The tradition I grew up with, uh, the questions like this were not encouraged. We were taught to just believe in faith. And maybe this is you today or someone you know. You've given up or are close to giving up the faith because you think you need to shove down or ignore all of your questions. Like we've been saying, if our faith doesn't grow up with us, we are in danger of growing out of it. For those of you who are not Christians, this can often be a critique and barrier of Christianity. They see a group of people who are afraid to wrestle with hard questions or to be intellectually honest about dilemmas. But a few years ago, I visited a tourist study at a, a local Jewish synagogue. And I was shocked when after reading the text, the rabbi opened the mic by simply saying, what questions and problems do we have with these verses? And after talking to some in the class afterwards, they explained their belief that it's through asking hard questions and wrestling with the text that it truly comes alive. The Fuller Youth Institute has identified one of the ways to help younger people stick with the church and faith is providing safe places to ask hard questions. My hope for our church and the broader church is that we can learn from this concept that it's not through avoiding questions, but it's wrestling with them that our faith comes to life. So, is it true? Here's a list from the story that might make us ask this question. Uh, first, the text says Noah was 600 years old. I don't know what kind of yoga he's doing, but that feels, <laughs> feels like a lot. Uh, how do they build a boat this big? Where did they get their power tools those days? How did Noah call the animals? Did he have some kind of dog whistle, right? Uh, how could all the animals, this is a big one, how could they all fit on the boat? What does the Bible mean when it says kinds of animals? Is it talking about species? Because that would be too many to fit on the boat. What about there not being evidence of a global flood? And finally, the big one, what did they do with all the poopy? <laughs> yes, I said poopy in church. I feel alive right now. So is it true? Did all these things happen exactly as it's written? Here's the deal. There are different camps here. Some Christians believe this is a historical, fully uh, literal, accurate account. There are Christians who have done a lot of work to show how so many animals could fit on the boat, and they believe that this was an actual global flood as is written. But then other Christians believe differently. They believe this was probably more of a localized flood. 
And they see the story uh, more as figurative, a passed down story from the Israelites helping to explain their history. And here's the deal. I'm positive we have both camps and everything in between in our church today. One of the things we say here at Menlo is we want to have a generous orthodoxy where we agree on the essentials but have grace in the non-essentials. It's a church where many different perspectives can belong all in the name of Jesus. I love this about our church. And like uh, last week, we're fine uh, not thinking about this topic. So for some of you, you're just fine. You're like, I could not think about this topic ever again. But other of you, you want to dig in more. Uh, And so in the same book series that we mentioned last week, we have a book uh, called Genesis, History, Fiction, or Neither. And it presents three Christian views of Genesis 1 through 11, including the flood. So you can check that out later if you're interested. But to our question, is it true? Well, I would say that maybe this is the wrong question to be asking. Again, every story points to something. Stories give a deeper sense of meaning and understanding. Uh, The head of theology theology for our denomination says it like this. He says, the flood is one of the most misunderstood stories in the Bible. Put to the side the question of whether it really happened or not. That question would be to misunderstand the point Genesis is trying to make. In the context of Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the best question is, what role does the flood play in the story of God and his image bearers? These are the best questions to understand the point of the story. What role does it play in the story of God and his image bearers. Years ago, my mentor told me something very similar. He said, with every scripture, we should be asking the question, what does this say? What does this tell me about God? And what does this tell me about us, humanity? This is the heart of the story. So simply put, uh, I think the Noah story is true. But for me, it's not about the animals or the flood or the boat That's not the point. There's something deeper going on here. So let's get to our our next question. This question is, what does this tell us about God? A common thought is this story is proof of a God who is angry or retributive. Famous atheist Richard Dawkins uses this story and other narratives to declare the God of the Old Testament a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a genocidal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And for some of you today, internally, maybe you have this lens of God, always annoyed and angry, just waiting for you to mess up. Is this what this story points to? First, we need to look at why God caused the flood in the first place. We see this in Genesis uh, 6, 5 through 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
It grieved him to his heart. You know, here in America, we are accustomed to mass gun shootings. And a group of people we often forget about are the parents of the shooters. Uh, Sue Klebold was the mother of Dylan, one of the teenage shooters at the Columbine shootings. She's now written a book, and she's given interviews detailing the pain and grief she felt because of what her son did. How could her boy that she raised and loved commit such a horrific act? For the rest of her life, she will grieve what her son did. See, this is the driving emotion we see from God. Not anger, not thirsty for blood, not vengeance. He doesn't take pleasure from the flood. Grief, hurt, sadness. And some of you will know this, but this was not the only flood narrative uh, in the ancient Near East. There were many others, some written before the floods, uh, the Noah story. Most famous one probably being the Epic of Gilgamesh. In these narratives, we see images of gods that were spiteful, annoyed, angry, and petty. But this narrative gives an image of what made Yahweh, the real God, different. He hurt and grieved and lamented the violence and evil that his children had become. So this is the first thing this story tells us about God and his character. He grieves and he hurts over violence and suffering in his creation. See, this was not God's original design. Sometimes we forget this. We get caught up in the evil and sin that abounds in our world and we forget this is not how God originally designed things to be. It was the rebellion of humans that changed things. And this is where the story gets interesting. Instead of fully ending all of creation, everybody doesn't die. A family is saved. God is going to do something new. The ark and Noah actually represent redemption and restoration, a new creation, a new Adam. Old Testament scholar Walter Walter Brueggemann says, the narrative concerns the grief of God, and the emergence of new humanity in the midst of old judged humanity. These dimensions of the narrative change our entire reading of God's well-known anger, and they redirect our exposition. See, this new humanity was an act of redemption and salvation, which was, of course, symbolized with a bow. And yes, we, we fill in a rainbow, But there is actually not a Hebrew word for rainbow. The phrase is a bow in the clouds. What is a bow? A bow is an arc that points to something. This is a kid's bow and arrow, by the way. Don't front row, don't be worried right here. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it's a bow that points to something. Where was this bow pointing? Towards God. God makes a covenant with Noah that this violence will never again be pointed down to humanity. Many of you will know the rest of the story with Noah. Just like the original creation, Noah and humans fall back into sin and violence. Apparently, Noah was only human. And as Christians who read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, we should be getting a lot of bells and whistles going off. The Noah story is pointing to something. 
awaiting for a day when a Messiah would come who would enter the waters of death and bring a new creation, a new covenant of peace and life. See, in the flood story, the bow of evil and violence is pointed down to humankind while one man is redeemed. But through Jesus, the bow is pointed on one man while the rest of humankind is redeemed. And we see that Jesus is called the last Adam. Through him, there's a true new humanity and creation. Throughout Jesus' life, he gives signs and miracles that point to a new kingdom, a kingdom that would be a restoration to God's original design. So what is the true rest of the story here? We have to zoom out from this one story, and we see the flood as part of the ongoing narrative of redemption, pointing beyond itself to the goodness of God. God used short-term judgment to set up eternal redemption, to one step along the way of God restoring broken creation. Now, the final question is this. What does this story uh, tell us about humanity? What does this tell us about humanity? What does an ancient and weird story like this uh, say about us? In a data-driven, logical world, the Silicon Valley, what can we learn from the flood story? See, there are two stories in our world, and each story points to something depending on how we interpret it. Uh, recently, uh, or not too long ago, I was driving on Highway 101, and I got uh, caught in standstill traffic. It took hours to get home. And later I was texting with a buddy, and he said, uh, you know the reason for the traffic? They were trying to talk down a jumper uh, from a bridge on the highway. And it broke my heart to be reminded of the suffering some people feel. I recently read an article about a category of the fastest rising death rates in America called deaths of despair. That include alcoholism, drug overdoses, and suicide. I can't count the number of times I've arrived at church on Sunday morning and someone says, did you hear about the shooting last night? It doesn't surprise me anymore, but every time I'm filled with pain. Recently, the U.S. Surgeon General uh, declared the country as being in the midst of a loneliness epidemic because of the vast amounts of people dealing with isolation. What does this story say about us? Some things haven't changed. We are humans still living in a world of chaos and pain and violence and suffering. This is our world. This is humanity. See, this story is built on hopelessness and despair. But it's only one story, one interpretation. In the 80s, uh, Father Greg Boyle uh, moved into a Los Angeles neighborhood with the highest concentration of gangs in America. And these folks are born into a story. In this story, a bow of violence seems to be concentrated directly on them. Uh, one example he gives is a kid's mom put out cigarettes on his body and would hold his head uh, in the toilet and flush until he nearly drowned. So many of them run to gangs for protection. And the world interprets this story, they interpret their story by labeling them thugs or animals or killers. But Father Boyle believed a different story. 
with a different interpretation. He believed that every human being is a beloved child of God, simply needing to hear a story of second chances and redemption. And so he started what became Homeboy Industries, which has now become the biggest gang reorientation program in the world. Homeboys and homegirls can receive free tattoo removals. They can learn to work in the bakery or the cafe, receive free therapy and get GED and college prep courses. And they're often working and living with people who used to be their enemies on the street. And to this day, over 7,000 people have come through the program and re-entered society. See, one story pointed to the worthlessness and violence but another story points to restoration and redemption. One man, one man decided to let his life story point others to a God who isn't done with them yet, to a God who is on a rescue mission of restoration. The author and pastor Thomas Cadell says that living life bears a resemblance to writing a story. How we live our decisions, our investments, our words, our entire life is a story, and every story points to something. What is the something in your story? In the same way, God put a bow in the clouds pointing to him. He's placed us in this world to point others to him. We are called to be ambassadors and messengers and signposts for a different narrative and story. People in our world are desperate for more meaning and understanding. Does your life point them to more meaning? Or is it just like everyone else's that they see? Does your life point to a God who is active and alive to a world that is inconceivably beautiful and good because of God and because God is always in it. When our world is caught up in a story of pain and despair and suffering, we live and speak and act in a way that points to something new and different, a story of restoration and hope, a storytelling not of God's anger or retribution, but his love and restoration. Your life tells a story. Every story points to something what is the something in your story? Let's pray together. And this week, uh, as we talked about last week, our spiritual, spiritual formation practice in this series is Lectio Divina. And what we do with Lectio Divina is we remember that the, the text is not just any story. The text, the scriptures are alive and active. So as we pray together, let's remember that God, his spirit is with us, speaking to us. So God, would you, would you speak to us? As we look at this ancient story, would you show us uh, an interpretation that this world so desperately needs? Would you show us the ways that we live and act and move in our lives and how we can point to greater meaning greater purpose. And God, for those of us who are in a situation of life where it feels like our story is just sunk in a time of worthlessness and suffering, would you give us hope? Would you speak hope and life and purpose to us today? 
Would you teach us to be a kind of a church that shows and points a God who is restorative, who is active, who redeems? So it's in Jesus' name.